My same friend who goes on long walks does another thing very well, something we should all aspire to do better. He works every day towards sharpening his attention, allotting his time effectively. Today, we talk about just that, about how to live on 24 hours in a day, how to train our attention, how to be more productive, and how to become better. Today, we're talking about order. Time is something allotted to each person equally, in a sense. On a day-to-day -day basis, there exists some equity in the idea that each person receives the same allotted 24 hours in a day. There's a British writer named Arnold Bennett. He writes about this in the early 1900s in a book called How to Live on 24 Hours in a Day. Cal Newport mentions this book in his book, Deep Work, which again, I highly recommend. Bennett's thesis essentially is that in the advent of, in the new, right after the Industrial Revolution kind of world in London, that there's this office job, referred to as, in Cal Newport's lingo, as the knowledge worker. So there exists this new person. And for us, this is the 9 to 5 in London. For Arnold Bennett, this is the 10 to 6. Bennett's entire book, it's pretty short, pretty much points out the idea that many workers seem to forget that there are 16 hours left in the day. And if you're sleeping for eight of those hours, then you've got eight other hours to work with. He implores these knowledge workers or office workers, as he calls them, to reminisce on the days when people worked 12 to 14 hour shifts, as they still were in mills around London. But he points out that this common place worker now, this middle class, this new burgeoning middle class that hasn't really existed ever, so he says, should ardently take advantage of the opportunity to live, as he says, like an aristocrat. Cal Newport again mentions this example in his book and says that Bennett, as Cal Newport agrees, advises us to live as an aristocrat by enjoying the great literature of the world and poetry. This is obviously a high-minded goal, but a nice one. Deeper, if you read Bennett's work, you'll see he's not only advocating for the common middle-class person to engage in this type of higher, noble mode of thinking, but rather thinking itself. He begins the book with a talk about his schedule, about the morning, and about the habitual complaining, really, of the populace of people that he knows saying that there's not enough time in the day. Like these things that people say these things all the time, and he's challenging that idea. And essentially, he's bringing out this challenge to society saying that people don't take time to think at all. And he adds up the amount of time that people actually devote to sitting down and thinking something important through all the way to the end. And he makes note of the idea that he barely even finds the time to be able to think through important personal or professional convictions all the way to the end of thought, a train of thought, similar to the way that my friend walked. And that's the person I thought about immediately when I read this, is my friend from language schools who we eventually went off um, and did a master's program together in a different country, and about his habits of walking and thinking. Cal Newport brings up the example to show that newspapers or newspaper reading can be attributed to the idea of people's habitual use of their phones. 
But again, Bennett begins with his commentary on his morning schedule, his breakfast, his reading in the morning of a book. He doesn't bring a book or a newspaper with him on the train. He gets on the train and he talks about all the people that he sees, what they're doing. They're all busying themselves with the newspaper or with conversation or bringing something on there to keep them from thinking is what he says. And he implores the reader to find these moments in daily life where we feel like we could indulge in some form of distraction, newspaper reading, looking at your phone chiefly, I think, looking around at a restaurant, perhaps at a television screen, pulling out your computer and Googling something. And instead, and, and Cal Newport reaffirms this idea, to embrace boredom almost and to sit there with your own thoughts and at times turn your attention towards some type of of problem that needs thinking through and think through it methodically. Arnold Bennett mentions that these sessions on the train in the morning on the way to London, which was probably a 40-minute to an hour long, if I remember correctly, became almost sacred to him. He's cordoning off this period of time, and he points out that he's doing it selfishly. He won't let anybody take it away from him. Again, he implores the reader to try this out. And I found the practice profoundly interesting because, chiefly because it's a practice. It's something that you can do and it's something that every single day you feel. You can see it. If you're by yourself, it's preparing food. If you're not, it's looking around. All these different times when we're waiting for something to sit and to think. Cal Newport talks about his walks during his PhD program across a bridge from his home in Boston to his office in Cambridge at MIT. He said he wouldn't bring anything with him. Sometimes he wouldn't even run because when you run, you can't think as well. And he would walk and he would think through these problems in computer science and work out the algorithms or these other types of solutions to these complex issues of computer science that he's grappling with in these white papers that he's trying to publish. And he eventually shows you that he publishes a lot more before his tenure review than he set out for himself. Arnold Bennett is on the train thinking about philosophy, thinking about his own professional life. And I find myself in restaurants or in line observing other people, almost as Arnold Bennett did, and thinking to myself, wow, he was right. Nobody is thinking. And it's, it's, it, it's fine for them, but you almost feel bad. But then you wonder, you know, I can't feel bad for them. I first have to realize this and change it within myself. In essence, I got to try this out before I bash anybody else. Am I really thinking at all ever? It brings me back to my friend that we mentioned last week in our episode on silence, namely that I'm driving the school van around town. I see my friend walking down the road. I ask him what he's up to. I ask him to get in. He kindly tells me, keep driving. I'm thinking... And I'd like to continue this train of thought until it's finished. I laughed, of course, but I was puzzled and almost jealous of the idea that he's able to go through and think about these things and he's not distracted. In essence, if he's in the car, he wouldn't need to turn on the radio. If he's walking, he doesn't put any headphones in. In another way, he's not scared to be with his own thoughts. We developed a a really profitable, deep personal and professional friendship me and this guy, and I found his most redeeming quality is his ability to focus. He 
personally maintains that this is not a, a quality that was inherently given to him, but rather something sharpened, trained, acquired. His spectacular ability to focus manifests itself in the short term and also in the long term. In, in conversation with this guy, his legs are crossed, usually he has glasses on. He's intently focused, it seems, on what you're saying. And at points in the conversation when you're finished saying something and you pause for something for him to say back, a lot of times he'll look at you and nod his head and smile and not say anything. And he seems focused and it seems as if he's thinking and decompressing and thinking about what you said, but you don't know if he's thinking about whatever he was thinking about before, but he's silent. That's why we mentioned him last week. But as I grew with this guy and we ended up moving into this master program together, I learned a lot more about him and his devotion to order. His devotion to order, his devotion to himself, and his selfish kind of cordoning off of time. Over a long term, this buddy of mine is really good at a few things, and one of them is creating goals and deadlines and holding himself accountable. He's good at kind of dragging others into his plan, holding him accountable, but at the same time encouraging others to kind of take the similar approach that he's taking. Once he has people kind of in his schedule per se, he has them set their own goals with kind of what they need to be doing, and he holds them accountable to it. He has this really interesting philosophy for himself, and it's strict. He keeps track of his work schedules. He sets himself daily, hourly, and weekly goals, monthly goals also too, but he holds himself really strictly to a deadline. If he's overambitious in his goal setting, he will work himself 60, 70 hours a week. I've seen this. Each week at an allotted time, he makes a PowerPoint presentation to himself and to the others who have been holding him accountable for that period of time. And he presents his progress on whatever his stated purpose was, if it was creating a research project or working on something for school or something personal or something professional, something business-related, anything that it was for that period of time, he creates a detailed one-page presentation to those accountable about what he's been doing. The most important thing to take away from my relationship with this guy and what I've learned from him is how serious of a relationship he has with himself. We talked about this last week in Jordan B. Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, about negotiating with yourself and kind of this tone and stance that you have to take with yourself when you're telling yourself that you need to be doing things. Here, we have an example of someone who doesn't go easy on themselves by way of, in my opinion, maintaining kind of a professional distanced air that while outwardly at dinners or over drinks or with friends, this guy maintains a, a healthy sense of humor. With himself, it's almost non-existent. There's no jokes going on between himself and his planning mind. While we were both apart and setting goals for the second year of this two-year master's program, we were focused on creating a master's thesis. This is something that was due, we're talking August of 2020 and is due in the summer of 2021. He reached out and said, I don't have anything going on for the month of August. I'm going to finish the thesis then. And he set out four weeks for himself to do this. He set out a detailed four-week plan and had deadlines to send drafts to me to be proofread to and 
to be proofread and then sent to his own advisor after that. And he worked himself thin for these four weeks. It was the only thing he was thinking about. He was living and breathing this thesis, which was about Chinese philosophy. When he finished this month, which he kind of crammed at the very end to get to where he needed every single week, and at the end of this fourth week, he was really rushing to finish the deadline, and he finished. He instructed me of his plans for the next seven days after this, for the fifth week, and he took four of them for himself. He cut himself off completely from society, went out into the wilderness, he said, kind of contemplated, walked around, and lived by himself with his own thoughts. Again, this is something I found profoundly interesting. He was—he didn't have his phone. He didn't have any contact with Wi-Fi. He just went out and lived in the wilderness. After that, he came back with his computer and kind of wrote down what he was thinking and set a plan for the next four weeks. For me, during this process, I realized that for each of us, this mode of order, this mode by which we can discipline ourselves to set deadlines and get things done concretely differs from person to person. Concretely, there is a difference in tone by which we kind of address our inner self. Also, I kind of realized my own shortcomings in this degree and realized it would be helpful if I did adopt a more professional disposition in my dealings with the planning and executing self. I learned a great deal about how I can motivate myself, about how I can be encouraged to achieve what I want to achieve, and chiefly what it is that I want to achieve. I think that was the most important part. I found that the first step in the process, almost the most important part in this entire process, is coming to a consensus with yourself and even with others bringing them in to find out what it is the goal actually is, what it is it that we're trying to achieve. Obviously, this begins, I think, with silence with contemplation and negotiation with yourself. I learned here from my friend promptly that it involves a far-reaching but somewhat general and and then albeit specific aim that you're trying to achieve, some overarching goal. My friend's goal was concrete, it was bold, it was simple. His goal seeks still to establish something far greater than himself, but yet it is simple. He understands that in order to work towards this, the achievement of this goal, there's got to be great work done, and that it's got to be general enough for him to work under the auspices of what German military planners call Aufstrahtaktik. I'm probably butchering the word. But the statement kind of alludes to the idea that there's goals for subordinate commanders. You make them sufficient enough for them to make battlefield decisions with a wider range of autonomy. Now, what that means is for him setting his own goal, it's got to be specific enough to where he knows which way to walk, but broad enough and specific enough in its intent such that on a week-to-week basis or an hourly basis or on a minute-to-minute basis, he knows as the own subordinate commander of his mind which way to walk, which tasks he should be performing, what's more important than the other one. If you understand clearly the intent of the overarching goal, all of that kind of falls by the wayside and into order. You know where you need to go. For example, von Clausewitz in On War explains Austrataktik kind of in this way, that instead of telling a subordinate commander or the army that it needs to take this bridge by 0700 hours, instead it's telling the subordinate commanders and the army in general that it needs to take the bridge at 0700 hours because 
we need to disrupt enemy communications on our way to the capital city, per se, such that he's giving his subordinate commanders enough of an idea of what his true intent is, that in the fog of war, as he refers to it, subordinate commanders will be able to understand how to fulfill the commander's intent without that being possible in some way. So if the bridge can't be taken, they can cut off the lines of communication by some other means. And I think that this applies really well in our progress towards achieving some greater goal, in that our greater goal should embody kind of an intent or a feeling that we know when we're undertaking smaller tasks, we kind of know exactly what we're, what we're striving for. So when we're stating our goals to each other or setting deadlines or setting out work to work on or not to work on, which is also important, he would kind of implore me to keep this specific principle in mind and that you're to use the time allotted to you, which is the same for everybody, to further some overarching goal that you've set for yourself. But importantly, you have to set that goal. For me, these over this overarching goal kind of has to embody compartmentalized parts, three parts, really, personal, professional, and spiritual or otherwise. When we sat down to kind of talk through what it was that we wanted to achieve, in part, my goal included the progress towards a tranquility of mind. He kind of laughed at this. He considered this something to be dealt with separately, demanding a more professional tone in my statement of, of an overarching goal of what I was to working towards, though I still believe that at its foundation, this is something that's the most important thing I'm working towards. In this sense, I found that it is important to maintain your own personal autonomy over what you're choosing as your goal, and that really nobody else can kind of direct you in the general direction of where that should be. For me, I really felt like a lot of this development of an overarching goal was instead of being directed outwards at something that I want to build, something that I want to build inside. Obviously, this is different for each person, and somebody might want to instead build something outside and then build within. But for me, it felt most important to kind of achieve these things on the inside and then kind of let them manifest themselves outward. And at the end of the day, at the end of my life, when I'm looking back and thinking, okay, what is it that I have achieved? Being able to first look at the things that I've achieved on the inside and be proud of them. And taking this kind of mortal disposition when we examine our lives saying, okay, if I'm going to lay it out all in front of me, if this is my last day and I want to say, okay, what is it that I have achieved? What am I going to be proud of? What is it that I wanted to have spent my time doing? I would say chiefly that a tranquility of mind and time for contemplation is above all the, the, the best thing that you could be doing for me. And, and that's what I set out to achieve in stark contrast to what he set out to achieve. But we've both kind of worked along this path, working diligently and in, in close contact with each other to achieve our stated goals. Since then, I have remained accountable to him and he's remained accountable to me. And we've continued to move forward working on these goals. In like manner, we kind of sat down and realized that practically speaking, it's important to break down our assessment of order on an hourly, daily, weekly, quarterly, and yearly basis, similar to the way that Benjamin Franklin did. For a guy like me, this is a little too detailed, right? And, and it's good to have a friend who's kind of pushing you to be more detailed in your analysis of what you're doing with your time. But touching on these individually kind of allows you as the decision maker, you as the supreme allied commander of your mind, to focus on one aspect at a time 
and then move on. For me, on kind of an hourly basis, mornings remain almost sacred, right? Something to be guarded selfishly with your entire life, everything you have to protect your mornings. For people who might have the objection that you don't want to rise early at 4.30 or however early you want to get up because you want to maintain the autonomy that you have at night, I would say try and examine closely the diversions that you are kind of undertaking at night and watch the people around you what they're doing at night. Is it reading? Is it looking at your phone? Is it watching television? Is it drinking with friends? What is it? What are you getting out of it? Really think deeply about that. Think about the costs and the benefits. Obviously, there's benefits to everything, but there's also costs. For me, giving up what I thought was kind of trivial at night, watching TV or engaging in kind of, you know, not so deep, shallow conversation wasn't as valuable as what I could get with myself in the morning. So I gave it up. I'll impart to you kind of what I see as the most sacred part of the morning, something so precious, something to be guarded really with everything that you have. Try this out. Do what you need to do over the course of a few days to get yourself to wake up before 5 a.m. Have coffee ready when you wake up or start trying to get in bed earlier or read for a couple hours before you go to sleep. Do whatever it is that you have to do to get yourself to get up before 5 a.m. comfortably. It might take a few days. After getting up, after about 20 minutes, drink coffee if you have to, if you want to. Set aside a time for your to sit on a pillow, crisscross applesauce, cross-legged. Engage in the most trivial thoughts that you can. Sit down and think about whatever it is that's in your head, about what you dreamed about, about what you were thinking about last night, and see how long it takes you to think through all of that trivial thought. Kind of as a doctor observes a patient, so to observe your thoughts, and you'll come across the he said, she saids in your mind, thinking about conversations that should have happened, should not have happened, did happen, thinking about them, I think about what they mean, thinking about what you saw on your phone, thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, think about what it is that you're going to do next year, about what it is that you did last year, think about all the pictures that you want to look at on your phone, and then wait for those kind of thoughts to subside, and they will. Oftentimes, I find it valuable to keep your phone off and away from you. I've, I've made the mistake of having it next to me and picking it up and thinking, oh, yeah, what am I going to have for lunch? And then picking it up and looking at it. Oh, man, I, I'm thinking about what I did last year and looking at a picture of it. And then kind of inevitably, after you do pick up your phone, you realize that you've been sitting there on the ground for 45 minutes with your head kind of tilted down, your face illuminated in the dark, kind of looking mindlessly at your phone. And you realize that your legs don't even hurt from sitting crisscross applesauce when your mind isn't thinking about your legs and that... It hurts to sit down for five minutes when your eyes are closed and you're not thinking about anything or you're just thinking about your legs the whole time. But it doesn't hurt when you are sitting there looking at your phone for 45, 50 minutes. But when you have kind of fought off those urges and you are actually successfully finishing with those trivial thoughts and kind of indulging in it, right? Thinking to myself like, you know, these are the things I want to be looking at. These are the distractions that I want to indulge in. Let, let's just indulge in it. Let's think about this stuff. And kind of when that has dried itself out, it's almost a liberating feeling to think that you've almost cleared out the shallows of your mind. All of the trivial stuff has kind of been just wiped off the top. There's still stuff under it, but it seems a lot deeper. Keep a watch with you on your wrist or next to you and kind of notice how long it takes for you to get rid of all these thoughts or kind of think through them all. Think through all the to-dos and the wanting to look in the past, wanting to look in the future. For me, the last time I did it, it took about 26 minutes which is fine. I mean, I wanted it to take longer, but I couldn't think of anything else. At the end of that 26 minutes, I stood up, petted the dog who was sitting there with me, 
stretched myself out and got prepared to do what's called Metavarna meditation, which is a really fun five-minute meditation that you can do at the end of each meditation session. What Metavarna does is set a timer for five minutes, sit there with the mantra, with the thought, kind of repeating to yourself, inside yourself, that may all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. Something that is really important to understand that if you really want that to come to fruition, if you really do want all beings to be happy, then logically you yourself also have to be happy because if all beings are going to be happy and you are a part of all beings, if you're not happy, then it's not all beings. So you have to be happy first. Understanding that is the first step. And the second step is almost trying this out, forcing a smile onto your face. It seems kind of weird and forced, but it actually does make you feel a little happy. You force a smile onto your face and you kind of repeat inside yourself, may all beings be happy. So you're thinking about all the animals in the world, all the plants in the world, all the people that you know, and you're saying, may all of these beings kind of share my peace that I have right now. And at that very moment, kind of clearing out this echo chamber of your mind before you do this, and you're smiling, it really does feel like you are happy and that you are at peace. And that kind of this, that you can radiate those positive vibrations, you can radiate that happiness out into the world. And you being happy yourself is kind of the only way or, or a great way to be able to kind of embody happiness in everybody else. When the timer goes off, finish and start your day. Ben Franklin writes in his autobiography that this order is kind of where he struggled the most. That kind of due to his social disposition that he would get distracted during the day. That he would find himself with the time that he allotted in the morning and the afternoon to work, going and talking with people and kind of wasting time in his view. That he found it difficult to remain on task but all the while remained faithful to his chief and only diversion, which was reading. And he did this in the morning and at lunch and in the evening, but complained that order was something that he really failed in, in his own self-examination, that it was really difficult to stay on task. And I find that kind of within myself. I look at my friend, at his conduct, at his ability to remain focused, at his ability to give himself tasks and then faithfully and dutifully finish them to the end as if he's working for himself. And I really envy that disposition and kind of want to cultivate it within myself and feel similarly with kind of Ben Franklin's revelations about being a social animal and that he wants to go out and be with people and talk with people and kind of takes them away from the task at hand. And I resonate with this idea. Also, I think it might be helpful for us to take stock of who we are as a person and when we are kind of negotiating with what it is that we should be getting done and being realistic, but also looking back and maybe kind of developing a more professional tone to deal with ourselves similar to the way that my friend embodies that professional tone within himself and his own conduct. By way of order, on a weekly basis, try this. Set aside time for yourself. Sunday mornings for me are reserved for contemplation, for philosophy, and for meditation. Sunday afternoons for editing, for writing, for recording, nothing else unless there's football on. Saturday afternoons for serious work. Saturday afternoons for friends. One afternoon a week for more dedicated longer periods of reading and the rest for work. A note here on the daily kind of in weekly schedules from Cal Newport's analysis of what could be attributed to order. The idea that we can set aside for ourselves four-hour blocks of time devoid of all modes of distraction, devoid of internet distractions, devoid of our phones, chiefly from social media. Again, this is this has been covered in silence, but again, and it'll be covered in resolution and frugality and industry. I 
cannot recommend enough Cal Newport's work about deleting social media off your phone. I heard about this on the Minimalist podcast. I bought the book Digital Minimalism and I read about half of it in one sitting and then deleted all my social media accounts and then came back and finished the book. I found in this kind of cost-benefit analysis that Newport kind of implores the reader to embark upon that there are distinct benefits from having a social media account. Chiefly, you know what your friends are doing, you can keep up with people in your community, you can organize things, but there are also costs associated with them, and that sometimes those costs are pretty steep, that when you analyze your screen time, it is dangerous in two ways. You'll have these unbroken periods of time when you're on your screen looking at things and seeing what you're looking at, like Instagram was the worst for me, that's the first thing I had to delete, and kind of seeing how that time accumulates. And then secondly, seeing how many pickups you have on your phone and how it breaks up these four-hour blocks or two-hour blocks or one-hour blocks of time that you have set aside for yourself to be able to really focus. One can only imagine that Ben Franklin in his day would have been an avid social media presence, right? He would have been tweeting a lot. He would have been looking at his phone, doing stuff, and it would have been something that he really had to deal with. Arnold Bennett, in his assessment of people reading newspapers, would have likely been an ardent defender of not having social media at all or, or really understanding the cost-benefit analysis. What Cal Newport implores the reader to do is to analyze the costs and weigh them and then analyze the benefits and weigh them and then weigh them against each other. And then he says, if the costs are 51 to 49 benefits, consider leaving for 30 days. So I did. And then at the end of the 30 days, I deleted the accounts permanently. I think that there is something lost there. There are benefits that are lost. There are people that you lose contact with. There are inevitably opportunities that you also miss out on. But if you analyze the benefits, thinking about the time that you've regained for yourself, if you look at your screen time, your phone is instead of five to six hours a day of screen time, it's one to two, maybe three. In essence, this is one kind of practical area that we can all consider cutting back and kind of reclaiming for ourselves. If you would like to try a 30-day schedule without social media, I would really implore you to try that. Over the course of that 30 days, creating a more a proper evening and morning schedule taking advantage of periods of solitude, time for thinking, time for exercise, time for meditation, time for walking, that these kind of periods of intensity of focus, practicing and honing in this focus helps us direct our minds more clearly towards what it is that we're trying to achieve in each week. Monthly goals, something I kind of struggle with, that are the supreme example of my friend, can be set according to our present personal and professional needs. For him, they differ from month to month and have a one-word theme. For me, they would be something like silence or order. For him, they would be something more like commercialization or something more professional. Quarterly, I would implore you to kind of develop a schedule. It's nice to have Ben Franklin's 13 virtues uh, align perfectly with 13 weeks and set out a time to maybe even give yourself a PowerPoint presentation, a one-pager on what it is that you've achieved this quarter and then what it is next quarter that you'd like to achieve. It's something that my friend did quite well. I also was kind of surprised to learn that Ben Franklin did the same thing. I don't know if he they came about it independently. Yearly, I think this one might be even tougher for me, kind of trying to allot times for deeper reflection. Yuval Noah Harari does this 60 days a year. He goes to a Vipassana retreat where he is completely silent. That's the same one that I did for 10 days. We can see that order is not easy. We're not expecting to arrive at perfection, but one of these days we will get closer to it, and it's about the journey. Next week, we'll be talking about resolution. Thanks for tuning in.